I did feel like it was necessary for us to look at each one of the Beatitudes in a separate message, but here we are. Matthew chapter 5. Today we are going to be looking very specifically at verse 13, but let's take this in context once again. We'll begin reading in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now you want to hear this. I recognize we're just opening the Bible. We're just diving in right here. You need to recognize that this is life and death. If you have any concern for your soul, look, you're going to die. What then? What Jesus is saying is this. Only those who are poor in spirit are going to find themselves possessors of the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. This is a mourning for sin. They shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Not the proud. The meek. See, what Jesus is doing is He's describing kingdom people. He's describing what the salvation of God does to people. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. He's talking about the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. I guarantee on Judgment Day, one thing will matter to you, and that will be to find mercy. And only if you're such an individual that God has changed from the hard, unmerciful, realities of the vast multitudes of humankind into this rarefied group of people that are actually merciful. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. If you're defiled with sin, sin separates. You'll not see Him. You'll not not see Him in a delightful fashion, but altogether in a terrifying way. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. No one else. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. You see, true Christians live for Christ's sake, so much so the world persecutes. Rejoice, be exceeding glad. For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, you're in a good lineage when you find yourself attacked by the world. Now here's our text for today. But I also want to read the two verses that I want to deal with, Lord willing, next week. You are the salt of the earth. Who's the you? Well, the people that possess these characteristics... You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. I love these two metaphors. That's what what it is. Who knows what a metaphor is? What's a metaphor? A picture. A picture? 
Is that what somebody said? It's, it's basically where you call something something else. Like life is a roller coaster. You ever heard? We talk that way, metaphors. Life is not a roller coaster. But life has certain aspects about it that are comparable to a roller coaster. Roller coasters are up and down. Life is a roller coaster because there's something, there's something parallel there. There's a similarity that we draw from. Who knows, who knows how a simile is different from a metaphor? What do similes do that metaphors don't? They use like or as. So, basically, if Jesus would have said, the Christian is like light, that would be a simile. The fact He says... You are the light of the world. That's metaphor. And and we recognize what he's doing here. We have something in common with light. And we have something in common with salt. This this is huge. I want to be able to preach this in, in a way that you all... Have a good sense of this. You feel this. Salt. Here's, here's the thing. I want to get into the minds of the disciples. We've got ideas about salt today. But what did those guys think? You know, it's not always enough to, for us to think salt. Well, what do you think of? Table salt or pink salt. You get Himalayan salt today. I mean, there's all sorts of ideas. People, you know, you shouldn't have salt in your diet. And now they're thinking maybe that's not even right. Maybe we should have salt in our diet. And, you know, what, what do we think about? What did they think about is what the real issue is. What went on in their minds? How did, how did they process this? Well, salt was valuable. And you probably heard this. I mean, if you've been around Christianity any amount of time, you, you heard, and it's true, Roman soldiers were not always paid in salt. And even when they were paid in salt, typically it wasn't their whole salary that came to them in the way of salt. But... It is true that Roman soldiers would at times and in seasons be at least partially paid their salary by the way of salt. And you've heard, you're not worth your salt. Well, that's basically a bad soldier wasn't worth his salt. What's interesting is salary, that S-A-L, that is Latin for salt. That's where salary comes from when we even talk that way. So it's valuable. But what else can be said about salt? You know, if you just search this in Scripture. Because I'm trying to think, okay, what are these guys hearing when Jesus says you're salt of the earth? And and the reason that I want to dive into this a little bit is, is this. When he says you're the light of the world, okay, that's not that's not difficult to figure out. Because light, you go into a dark room and light. Makes manifest. We have this idea that being light in dark is, is, you know, the world is dark. And we're the light. We shine the truth. That's, that's pretty easy to recognize what the relationship is there. How we are like light. But I don't think it's as easy with salt. Because he doesn't really say, what is it that salt does? What, well, okay, you go into Scripture. You just search salt. There was a covenant of salt. 
Okay, you know what's interesting? Listen to these verses. A covenant, you all probably recognize, it's like a contract between two parties. It's an agreement between... It, it specifies what the responsibilities are of both sides of a party. We have an old covenant, we have a new covenant. There's various covenants in Scripture that we could look at. But listen to this. I have given to you and your sons and daughters with you an ordinance forever. It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord. Or said to David, Lord God of Israel gave the dominion over Israel to David forever, to him and his sons by a covenant of salt. A covenant of salt had perpetual obligation. Now why salt? Maybe because salt is used very specifically as a preservative. We'll look at more of that in a second. But you know, you've put salt, you put salt in meat and you can preserve it a long time. That may be why it was used that way. We're also told this, when offerings were made, it wasn't supposed to lack salt. Listen to this. Everything or every offering of your grain offering you shall season with salt. You shall not allow the salt of the covenant of your God to be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings you shall offer salt. Anyway, so the, when they made offerings, salt was supposed to be on there. Something else. There was a time Abimelech conquered his enemies. And it specifically says he killed the people... And he sowed salt on their land. Basically, that would make the soil infertile. What else? Salt gives flavor. Job said, can flavorless food be eaten without salt? I would say this. Even though there's not a text in Scripture that says salt makes thirsty, and even though... from a, from a medical standpoint, it's questionable whether it does or not. It, th- there is enough evidence, I think, that it produces thirst. Typically, we think that. That perhaps is one of the things that we could think of with salt. But salt is an antiseptic. Salt is a preservative. And in Ezekiel chapter 16, we get this. As for your nativity, on the day you were born, your navel cord was not cut nor were you washed in water to cleanse you. You were not rubbed with salt. Now he's talking about spiritual realities, but he's using physical, a physical picture to describe it. They rubbed children with salt. Why? It was an antiseptic. And undoubtedly, you had, you had to chop the umbilical cord. You, anyway, it, it, would have, it would have helped against bacteria. The thing is, Salt has an antibacterial characteristic. It sucks the moisture out of bacteria and kills them. Salt also, you throw it in a wound, it stings. So, here's the question. Those are pictures that we get of what salt does. How is a Christian like salt? Listen to this. You are the salt of the earth. You, Christian, How is the Christian like salt? That's the question. Do we bring a Christless world a Christ-like flavor? I mean, is that it? The Scripture does talk about us being the aroma. I know that's got to do with smell, not with taste. But 
Could that be we, we add a flavor in this world? It could be. Do we make folks thirsty for Christ? Is that what he's... Perhaps. I mean, are we like salt that gets in the wounds of the world and stings? You know, if we're going to do what we were looking at last week, where you're going to expose the evil deeds of the world, and we're going to be light like that, does that sting? Does that get in the wound of the world when you call out their sin and call it what it is? Perhaps. Are we a preservative in the world to stop the decay? I mean... As salt in the earth, what is that? Well, you know what? Jesus does not specifically say. But probably we could take all those things. I mean, the reality is that any one of those or all of them together, what Jesus is saying is this. You're the salt of the world. We know what salt does. Salt does things. If salt has its saltiness, it has an influence on things. If you put it in food, it preserves it. If, if, you, if you rub it into meat, if you put it on food and you eat the food, obviously it flavors it. Is, is there some reality that you could take salt and it makes you thirsty? If you've ever eaten some, like some salty ham or something and you feel tremendously thirsty, you know something of that reality. If you've ever gotten salt in a wound, you know that it stings like that. Jesus doesn't specifically say, but this we know. Salt that possesses its saltiness is profitable. It was so profitable that Roman soldiers were paid at least partially with this. And here's the thing. Salt that loses its saltiness won't create thirst. It won't create a good taste. It won't stop rot. And what he says is good for nothing but to be thrown out. Now listen, this this is key. Because if you think about what Jesus is saying, He's looking at His disciples and He's saying, listen, you are the salt. You alone If there's any word you want to connect with salt, it's this. It's influence. Now, you know, I know this isn't a good thing. Obviously, it's a bad thing. You typically, in San Antonio, you did not want to buy a car that came from Houston. You typically did not want to buy a car that came from the seacoast because of the salt And salt has a particular effect on metal. And of course you know, if you don't have the right primer and the right paint, salt gets through to the metal on a vehicle and it rusts. I was was out with the snow on my vehicle looking at it this morning and I saw that there was a place of rust. You know what happens when salt touches metal, and you have water, there's a chemical reaction. Do you know what happens when a person consumes salt? It does something within the person. Suddenly you have a greater salt content outside the cell than inside the cell, and it extracts moisture. That's why they think it makes people thirsty. There is a very interesting thing with salt. When you... When you basically put it on a wound. It kills bacteria. You take salt and you rub it into meat, like beef jerky, and the stuff can last indefinitely. Why? Because it kills the bacteria. Listen, the thing about salt is influence. 
When he says you are the salt of the earth, he means you and you alone are one of the most massive influences in this world. Did you recognize that about yourself, Christian? He doesn't say that the media is mass is going to be the salt of the earth, or the politicians are going to be the salt of the earth, or the learning institutions, or whatever. Fill in the blank. Where, you know where the world looks for the movers and the shakers, the people that are really going to be the influence in the world? Well, it's the politicians, it's the movie stars, it's the military might, it's these different... You know what Jesus says? You are the salt. Why? Because the power of God Almighty flows through the Christian. And influence is the issue. It speaks to Christians' influence on this earth. And I'll tell you this, clearly in the context, you know where this influence comes from? It comes from having the Beatitudes. I mean, at least the Beatitudes are... There's many other things that could be said about the Christian than just what's said in the Beatitudes, but that's the context here, folks. The reality is people that are poor in spirit that are not trusting themselves, but they're looking to what Christ did. They're clinging to what God does for them. Not living in their own strength. People that mourn over their sins. People that are meek. Their pride has been busted by the reality that before God they're nothing. They have nothing to boast in. Christ going to that cross speaks so loudly that we're wicked people. You know the truth is by birth we're liars. We're we're bad people. We're not good people. And that's what that cross says. Christ did not come into this world because man was good. He came because we were broken. Because we were, we were twisted. Not straight. Not right. Oh, we have these ideas about ourselves. Oh, we're pretty good people. You know what the Bible says? No, you are not good people. And that, that, I'm not just talking to you. I'm talking to me too. But what happens is God does something in our lives and He creates in us such, such a, an influence on this world. It goes way beyond military powers and political powers and, and educational systems and, and Hollywood. We, we may say, we're so small, we're so insignificant. Listen, This is exclusive. I mean, you understand what he's saying here. You get this distinct sense. This is emphatic. The only salt in the earth is the Christian who lives these kind of beatitudinal life and faith and conduct. And we never want the persecution that was talked about in the verses right before this to prevent us from being this kind of influence. You know what? I mean, we can look at it. The smallness of it. Oh, what can a small group of meek, mournful, merciful people against this out there, this hard, this tough world? I mean, aren't we too feeble to achieve anything significant? Especially being such a minority? Well, Jesus doesn't think so. He doesn't think so at all. Our littleness never prevents us from being the salt of the earth. You know what prevents us from being the salt of the earth? Not littleness. Losing our saltiness. That's what does it. And I'll tell you this. Apparently the devil doesn't ignore us 
even though we're in such a minority. Because I keep coming back to this. That text there in Revelation chapter 12 will never let us get away from it. The devil has declared war and he is enraged with the woman and her offspring. And who are those offspring? The people that keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus thinks, no matter how small we are, we are the main influence in this world. And the devil, he knows we are. And he's coming for us. But he won't have victory. And you know what the truth is? He can't rub the saltiness out of us. Not if God is for us. Who can be against us? Not even the greatest fallen angel. You know what the thing is about the influence of salt? is It's distinctness. You see, the thing about salt is when you put it on a wound, it is entirely distinct from the skin, the wound, the flesh, the bacteria. It has qualities that it introduces that weren't there before. Same thing with food. You throw it on food. You eat it. Well, it tastes. You see, it's the distinctness of salt that makes salt valuable. But it's, I'll tell you, salt has properties distinctly different than the thing that it influences. It's never like what it influences. Salt is different, and that's the reality. It's the saltiness that makes it stand out from that which is not salt, from everything else. Its usefulness lies in the fact that it has qualities entirely different from the salt. You see what I'm saying? You lose your saltiness. Here's here's what they did. This is one of the ways that they got salt. Now, they had various ways. One of the ways they got salt in Palestine in this day was from the Dead Sea region. And if you know about the Dead Sea, the, the water is some of the most salty water in any body of water that we have on the face of the earth. And so they'd go over there. Basically, the sun, it takes the moisture out. You're left with this salt, but so much of this salt, it was mixed with sand, it was mixed with other impurities. And and the truth is, the salt that they used, it could lose its saltiness. In other words, the actual sodium chloride leached out of it. So you you could end up with something if you allowed moisture to get to it or whatever that basically lost its saltiness. And when it loses its saltiness, it's not distinct anymore. And when the church... Listen... You need to catch this. It's when the church is absolutely different from the world that we are going to have the greatest influence. It's not when you try to make the church most like the world. You see what I'm saying? Our influence comes from being distinct, from being absolutely different, not like it. When saltiness is lost, its distinctness is lost, it's no good. If we Christians are indistinguishable from non-Christians, you know what Jesus says? Look at the words He says. If salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing. You want to be good for nothing? Just lose your distinctness. Listen. This is what true biblical Christianity is all about. This, this is what it is. This is coming surrendered to God. 
to have Him forgive our sins based on what Christ did on the cross. And He so radically changes us. This is what it, this is what it means to be born again. To become a new creation in Christ. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to tell you one of the most important things about salt that I'm going to say today. <clears throat> it's this word, contact. Listen, Salt never accomplishes anything. I don't care how salty it is. It never accomplishes anything unless it comes into contact. Do you recognize every single use of salt? If you wanted to use salt on your offering, it specifically says in Scripture, you season it with the salt. When it was meat, you put it on the meat. If you want to season food, you have to put it on the food. If you want to use it as a disinfectant, an antibacterial on a child, you had to rub the child with it. Do you recognize that if you're going to kill the rot and the putrefaction and the decay of the world... The salt has to touch something to influence it. You can't keep it over there in the shaker. You can't keep it in the cupboard. It's got to come into contact. It's only good, only when it's making contact with whatever it is going to influence. Listen very carefully. The Christian is not, is not poor and mourning over sin, and meek, and hungry, and right, hungering and thirsting after righteousness, and, and merciful, and pure, and peacemaker, all in some kind of splendid isolation. We don't, you recognize monasteries and convents. That is not scriptural. That is the creation of a false religion. God never tells us to go live little house on the prairie. I trust you know that here just like we do in the U.S. But you know, there can be a tendency to want to do that. There can be a tendency for the Christian to want to escape, to want to get far away from the world. But you're going to be salt with the world. You're going to be salt of the world if only when you are in contact with that world. That's just, that's just the reality. We've got to touch the world to get into the world if we're going to be salt in the earth. You know what you've got to do? You've got to get next to people. Listen, this kind of Christianity that is basically, I want my Calvinism. I want my Reformed faith. Teach me about election. Teach me about limited atonement. And you just come to your church and you're within the salt shaker. And then you just go home to your little isolated house and you go back and forth and you're never making contact with the rot and the decay of the world out there. How in the world are you ever going to be salt? Salt's got to come in contact. We've got to get out of our comfort zones. You know what? This, the way the church is salt is these beatitudinal realities, our purity, our mercy. How about mercy? Blessed are the merciful. How are you going to show mercy to the world unless you come into contact with the world? Brethren, we are the salt. We are the ones. You see, we don't just bear some abstract truth about a sovereign God. Some abstract truth about a cross. 
somewhere 2,000 years ago. It's not that. We're taking this truth and we're supposed to follow in Christ's footsteps where we take the truth out there. You know what? That's, that's what Jesus did. Did Jesus just throw down tracks from heaven? Did He just shout at us? Hey, come up here. You know what He did? The Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. He is the true light of the world. And even though Scripture doesn't say so, Distinctly, he's the true salt of the earth. Brethren, we've got to get next to people. We've got to get out. You know, you know what this requires? We've got to get out of our comfort zones. Oh, it's so easy, especially here in the West. So easy. And I found that coming from the U.S. You move over here to England. And well, you know, the houses are smaller, but basically the same. The vehicles are smaller, but basically the same. The, the food you eat, a little bit different, but basically the same. It's more. <laughs> the American portions. Well, my wife's been serving me American portions. That's <clears throat> why so i got to go to the gym tomorrow. But brethren, the truth is, we can become so comfortable in our little protected places so that the reality is, and I recognize, we meet over here in West Houghton. Houghton. The reality is, we can live in a neighborhood and the people next door to us don't even know we're Christians. People across the street don't know we're Christians. People that live next to our meeting place don't know we're Christians. The people that we work with, they don't know we're Christians. How in the world are we going to be the salt in the earth unless we're making contact? Listen, we've got to get out there in the world. We've got to get next to the depraved. We've got to get next to the demon-controlled. I was not rebuking my wife coming home yesterday when she hugged that demon-possessed girl. You know what? That's exactly what we've got to do. That's how we're going to touch the world. Sonny can stand up there and preach all day long. But I'll tell you, when those people begin to see that we have a love for them, and I'll tell you, people can sniff out the, the real deal from the faults. They know when you're just looking past them. They know when you're out there and you're being part of the church group, but you don't really care for them. You won't make eye contact with them. You won't give them the time of day. They know that. The, the, the world's smart. They know salt. And they know when it's not salt. They know hypocrisy. And you know, they really want it. They, they, they're looking for it. But you know, when you hit people with a real dose of Christianity, they tend to sit up and they take notice. There are filthy sinners. There are lost sinners. Do you know what Jesus did when He came down here? He was known to be a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And you know why He was known to be that? Because He got out there. He didn't come here and build a monastery somewhere and build a school and have everybody come there and He was rarely ever seen. He got out on the streets. He got out in the highways. He got out in the hedges. He got out in the back alleys. He got out in the deep holes of life. And He was salt. And He got in there and He loved people and He hit them with the stinging truth and the stinging reality that their righteousness was not going to stand up on Judgment Day. But you know what? He also put out His hand and He touched them. He was able to be touched by the tears of a woman of the city that spilled onto His feet. He was able to reach out His hand because He was so close and touched lepers. That's what He did. And He's our example. Two essentials of the salt. Two essentials. Salt has to be salty. But no matter how salty it is, if it doesn't make contact with what 
It is supposed to influence. It'll never leave an influence. You've got to have both. And you can take all the salt you want and rub it into the decaying meat, but if it's lost its saltiness, that's no good. You've got to have both. And listen, professing Christian in this place today, we can almost wish... You know one of the problems? One of the problems is that when you preach what Christ preaches, you can sometimes... People can say, wow, there's not, there's not that much grace in, in what that preacher's saying. But what I want people to do all the time is please... Look, look past me. What you really need to be asking is this. Am I trying to tell you what is coming from Scripture right here? <clears throat> Jesus tells us something here. You're the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, or maybe your Bible says has lost its taste, how shall it be seasoned? It's then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You want to be careful with these allegories, these metaphors, because when Jesus starts talking about it's worth nothing, He's not describing Christians who are genuine, who lose their saltiness, but it's okay. They're just kind of useless and yes, they're going to make it to heaven, but everything will be okay. Do you know when Scripture talks about something good for nothing but to be thrown out? You really want to take note of that kind of language. Notice these words. Loses flavor. I want you to hear two other verses where that very same Greek word is found. Professing to be wise, they became fools. Say, hmm, where is losing its taste in that verse? Let me give you another one. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world. You see, there it is again. Do you know that this word can be simply translated made foolish? Do you recognize what Jesus is saying? There's an aspect to which salt that is not salty is made foolish. Because it is foolish. You wouldn't even call it salt if it's not salty. Salt that's not salty isn't salt. It may claim to be salt. It may bear the name of salt. But it, brethren, I'll tell you, this is a, forb, it's a foreboding statement. And Jesus repeats it elsewhere. Listen to this. Mark 9, salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Luke 14, salt is good, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It's neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. Did you get that? It's not even fit for the dunghill. Now, you could understand... If salt has retained some of its saltiness and it is an antibacterial and you throw it on the dunghill, you can imagine it might cut the, the stink, the stench. But it's not even good for that. Do you recognize what Jesus is saying when He's saying somebody's not even good for the dunghill? That's not a place you want to be. But listen, 
What is it to lose your saltiness? It's basically where you're living the kind of Christianity that is an influential. This is a very foreboding statement. What makes the Christian salty? Context tells us at least, at least, it is blessed are the merciful. At least, blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those hungering and thirsting after righteousness. But I, I come back to that. Blessed are the merciful. Brethren, we've got to get out there in the world and show the mercies of Christ. Otherwise, we're not going to have any kind of influence. Beatitudes. If a person loses these things, then what? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out. And you know the greatest danger of all? Do you know the greatest danger of all? I've seen it. I've seen it repeatedly. People say this. Well, I'm a Christian. Christians can't lose their salvation. So they just dismiss this. It's like, I'm saved. How do you know you're saved? Well, because I know my life changed. I I believe. I believe. I come to church now. All these things. That is a very dangerous way of thinking. Do you see what Jesus is saying? I mean, the greatest danger of all is you can't hear this. I hear this so often. This line of reasoning can be fatal. Well, I'm a Christian. I know I'm a Christian. And then they'll tell you how they know. And yet then they come along and they say, but I can't lose my salvation. And so no matter if I'm salty or not salty, it really doesn't matter. And they don't even hear this. They dismiss these words as not applicable. Scripture instead encourages us to realize that whatever might be true of me, whatever name I might go by, I can call myself a saint, I can call myself a believer, I can call myself a Christian. If I don't maintain my saltiness to the end, he says I'm good for nothing but to be thrown out. And remember, this isn't salt being talked about here. This is me. This is you. This is people. People who are in the church. Because it's not just the masses out there. It's people who had an appearance of saltiness and they lost it. I want to just do a little bit of a theology of falling away. Listen to Scripture. The ones on the rock are those who when they hear, they receive the Word with joy. I'll tell you this, receiving the Word about Christ and what He's done for our sins with joy is a good thing. But you know there are people that do that. They hear it. What's joyful? Wonderful. Well, I want that. Who wouldn't be on board? All my sins forgiven, no hell at the end. But then what happens? They have no root. They believe for a while. And in time of temptation, get these words, fall away. Do people fall away? All the time. I've been pastoring for how many ever decades and... Have I seen it? Yeah, over and over and over. People who at one time were very confident. People who one time appeared very salty. Jesus says this, He who endures to the end will be saved. Are you grabbing hold of what endure means? You see, what Jesus is saying is, you have to endure, not just in professing His name, you have to endure, not just saying, I'm a believer, You endure to the end with saltiness. And if you lose the saltiness, you're not in a good place. This is the reality. Or how about this? 
Listen to this. A picture of Judgment Day. This pertains to all of us. None of us can escape this. Judgment Day is coming. It's appointed to you to die. And then the judgment. Here's what's going to happen on Judgment Day. You all do well to, to listen up. God will render to each one according to his deeds. Now I'll tell you, if one of your deeds is that you confessed your sin to Christ and you asked Him to save your guilty soul. See, that deed in itself, Jesus guarantees you He will wash away all that's guilty on your record. So that any deed that you did which you don't want to have to face on Judgment Day, you want the blood of Christ to cover it. Because if you go there without the blood of Christ, it's all going to be brought out. Everything you've done, everything you've thought, when you thought no one was looking in the recesses of your mind. But He's going to render to each one according to His deeds eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good Seek for glory, honor, immortality. You see that? The saltiness. There's a patient continuance. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be indignation and wrath. Or Paul talks this way to Timothy, talking about faith and a good conscience, which some have rejected concerning the faith and have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander. This isn't theoretical. Do you know what Paul is saying? I know two guys that were in the church and they made shipwreck of their faith. You say, wow, I thought you couldn't lose your salvation. Listen, God saves well. Salvation is of the Lord. But the reality is, that a lot of people walk through this life without the real deal. They walk through in an imitation. They walk through in a, in a religion that they have created themselves. Yes, they may have experienced certain aspects of the power of the Spirit in the age to come. But people fall away, brethren. And one of the things that Scripture tells us is we've got to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Even though it's God that works in us, both to will and to do of His good pleasure. God is sovereign. God is moving. But He will always work through the means of our own responsibility. He calls us to fight the good fight of faith. And I'll tell you this, you've got to fight to remain salty. And there are things you can do to lose your saltiness. There are things you can do. You know what? that good conscience. Just start to defile your conscience. Just start to view that pornography. Just start to let your thoughts go where they shouldn't go. Just start to toy with sin and see how fast it'll take you where you never meant to go. You want to be careful. You want to be real careful. Brethren, I'll tell you this. One of the promises of the new covenant is that God will put His fear in us so that we do not depart from Him. You know what happens to the true Christian? They hear warnings like this. And they fear. And they say, wow, if there's so much danger of losing our saltiness, I'm going to fight for my saltiness. I'm going to fight for it. Uh, brethren, I'm, just, I'm going to end up here. I don't think we've gone too long, right? We haven't even been an hour yet. But I'm going to, I'm going to finish this up by going after our thinking. 
You see, these battles are fought so often in the mind. We've got to think right. And I, I want to give you some reasons we're not more salty. See, I want you to strive for saltiness, brethren. And I'm going to give you some reasons that we're not more salty. First one, we just plain don't define normal Christianity as salty Christianity. Now, you follow what I'm saying? Listen, there are a lot of people, and I find this especially in Reformed circles. Well, we have these sinful hearts. They're desperately wicked. What can we do, O wretched man that I am? Right? Brethren, that is not the way Jesus speaks. The promise of the new covenant is that God is going to give us a new heart. The promises of the new covenant are that sin will not have dominion over you. The promises of the new covenant is that Jesus, He gave Himself up. Make a people of zealous of good works. That's the reality of, of the New Testament. We can have such a tendency to describe normal Christianity in such saltless terms. It's almost like where defeat and failure is the norm. Brethren, a large segment of professing Christianity in this country right now refuses to even meet. Brethren, I want you to hear what I'm saying. I look around the landscape in England. You've got a lot of people in this country that aren't even willing to abide by what Christ has indicated His church ought to be doing. And you know what? Here's, what, here's what's happening. Many pastors are saying, well, there's been a sifting. There's a sifting. And I know a lot of gracious pastors are wanting to say, well, you know, they're children of God and they just they don't want to meet and they're scared to death to die. Scared, of, scared to death of death. They can't hardly even meet. They recoil from each other. Christians. Seriously, Christians? You see, but, but we can get in the place where we're okay. Well, we're You know what we start doing? We start defining these two classes of Christians. Christians that are willing to follow their Lord wherever they're willing to go. And these who are not so willing to follow the Lord wherever He is, wants us to go. And so you begin to define Christianity as basically this lame thing. People who have no influence on the world. People who will barely influence one another in the church. Let alone in the world. And, and so we start defining, well, that's, that's pretty normal for 50% or 80% of the Christianity in this country. You see what happens? You begin, you know what? If somebody won't even venture into the walls of their own church because they're scared to death, you think they're out there trying to reach somebody, some red-blooded sinner that really has need? You think they're coming up alongside them seeking to be salt? Hardly. Brethren, we've got to define Christianity biblically, not according to our whims, our political situation, the, 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 you know, the, the winds of, of COVID. I mean, brethren, we've got to describe it here. Blessed are the merciful. But when you've got somebody that says, well, I'm not going to show mercy. I'm, I'm not going to even show it to the brethren in the church. I'm not going there. I might die. I might catch this bug. I might get a cough. I might get a respiratory problem. Yeah, what do you think happens when you hug demon-possessed women? And yet, that's exactly what Jesus Christ did. He got out there among them. He got among their diseases and their sicknesses. Can you imagine that? Oh, we could never go to where people have COVID. Let alone, you think Jesus had a mask on? 
Brethren, we've got it. I'm not knocking the mask, Mary. <laughs> I know I'm looking right at you when I say it. I'm not. I, but. <laughs> Brethren, we've got to be. We've got to deal with reality. I'm okay. Go, go out there with your mask on, but get out there. That's the thing. We, if we're going to be salt in the world, let's define it the way the Bible defines it. And then there's this. We wrongly assume sinful deeds committed are greater than saltiness omitted. Now did you hear that? You want to hear that. You know what we have? We have this idea, well, if I beat my wife, I'm a bad guy. Yeah, I would be a bad guy. If I'm watching pornography, I'm, I'm a bad guy. But you know what we tend to do? Well, if I lie, if I cheat, if I steal from my employer, well, I'm a real bad guy. You see, we tend to put those up here on, the, on this level, but when we omit saltiness, when we, when we don't get out there and really have an influence on the world, well, that's not so bad. Can I tell you something? On Judgment Day, Jesus does not say to those on His right hand, well done, because you didn't beat your wife. And you on the left did. He says, I was hungry and you fed me. And you didn't. You want to hear that. Do you know in Scripture, God says to Israel, the sin of Sodom, your sister, was this. You know when you hear Sodom, you immediately think, ah. Whether he's describing actual Sodom, or he's using that term in a derogatory sense to describe somebody else, it doesn't really matter. Because in the end, you know what he says? The sin of Sodom, your sister. Not homosexuality. They didn't take care of the poor and the needy. This is the guilt. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. Listen, I come back to this. That saltiness of the Beatitudes is blessed are the merciful. I don't care the poorest among you. If you haven't been to Cambodia, you haven't been to India, you haven't been to Nepal... You haven't been to Nicaragua or Haiti. You live in the lap of luxury in this country. The poorest person here. Do you recognize what Jesus is saying on Judgment Day? The things He's commending is the people that got out of their comfort zone. You see, we wrongly assume Well, I don't do this. I don't do this. I don't do this. No. No. On Judgment Day, Jesus is looking for what you did do. Omitting the care of the needy. Recognizing that the world around us, they are out there and they are sitting in darkness. If we're going to be salty, we've got to care about that. Does anybody care that England is dying? Do you know eternity is long? 
Life is short. Or there's this. We wrongly assume we can easily restore what's lost. You know what Jesus says? You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? You know what? We can, we can start to coast, and we can start to think, wow, you know, take a little break, a little relaxation, a little vacation. We kind of we start to become unsalty. But we've got this idea, well, we can recapture it whenever we want to. Do you recognize what Jesus is saying? How shall it be seasoned? He doesn't say, you know, salt that begins to lose its flavor, it's very good for being restored. How shall it be seasoned? Now look, I know with God all things are possible, but be careful. You want to be careful. Be very careful. I recognize that there can be ups and downs in the Christian life. I, I recognize that the Corinthians were carnal at a season. The Galatians were foolish at a season. But I'll tell you, they were only seasons. And when the apostle talks to them, it is with urgency that they get out of that place right now. Because he warns both the Corinthians and the Galatians, you stay there and that's death. Beware. We, we could almost think, well, Jesus... These are strong words. They don't, they don't sound nice. You know, Jesus came into the world not so much to be nice, but He came to tell us the truth. This is the truth, brethren. Then there's this. We wrongly assume that having truth guarantees saltiness. Brethren, I'll tell you, this happens all the time. People, people they come to the Reformed faith and they feel like, well, you know what? We're salty because we've got the truth. Our truth is salty. Perhaps. But that doesn't make automatically for a salty Christian. Yes, yes, brethren. Do we need the truth? Absolutely. Do we need to rightly divide the word? Yes. But you know what? We can have a lot of abstract truth without the fire. And without the heat. That's just the reality. Without the heart. We're doctrines of Grace embracing people. But you know what can happen? We're not cross embracing people. And didn't Jesus say, carry your cross? You know what He wants from us? He wants sacrifice. He wants us to imitate Him. He came here. He, he, he had an eternity of glory that He laid aside. He emptied Himself. He took upon Himself the form of a man. And He died on the cross. He, he came a man of sorrows and He bids us to follow Him. Do you recognize this is only a short season? We're only in this world for a few more rolling suns at most. He's left us here for a purpose. And it is because He has determined that He is going to use salty men and salty women to be those who propagate His kingdom. And it's only for just a few years. We don't have long. We have to work while it's day. But we can wrongly assume that having this truth... You know what? Calvinism does not by itself make us salty. In fact, let me tell you something. There is a strain of Calvinism that apparently lacks the saltiness to make its influence on anybody. And it's evident by the nature of so many Reformed churches. Just look at them. 
They gather together, they come together, they, get, they, they, they do their thing on Sundays, and they go off to the world, and they don't have an impact on anybody. And I can tell you, you can look down through the corridors of, of history, and you can look at a Charles Simeon, and look at his type of Calvinism, an evangelical Calvinism. You can look at that of William Carey's, who said basically, I'm breaking out of this hyper-Calvinism, and I'll go down in that pit. I'll go down in that well, guys. I'll take our salty Christianity here and take it out to the ends of the earth. If you guys will hold the ropes, I'll go down in that well. That's the kind of Calvinism we need. Or Spurgeon's. Spurgeon. Yeah, it's been said of Spurgeon. What differentiated him from many others was his basic vision for the church. Surrounding ministries tended to have a siege mentality. The battle cry was circle the wagons. In other words, stay in the salt shaker. Just stay in there. Don't get out. Circle the wagons. He said, although many would have denied it, they believed the church existed for its own sake. The top priority was safety, purity, comfort of the church. Theirs was a fundamentally defensive posture. Spurgeon's response was to set about to recover an understanding of what the church really was. He recognized that the whole orientation of the gospel is outward toward the lost. See, if we're going to be salt to a putrefying, decaying, dying world, you've got to get out there, you've got to rub it on the child. You've got to rub it in the meat. Brethren, the more interaction, the more we get out there, the more we come close to sinners, the more we are going to be this salt. We can't stay in the shaker. You've got to get on the food. You've got to get on the thing that you want to influence. And then there's that great Calvinist Paul. He knew about the sovereignty of God. Wasn't, don't, didn't he write Romans 9? He says to Moses, I have mercy on whomever I will have mercy. I'll have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. But listen to him. Listen to him. With great sorrow, he says, I could wish myself accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my kinsmen according to the flesh. He could say, my desire for them is that God would save them. And you know, in another place, he says, I become all things to all men, that by all means I may save some. Do you recognize there's a certain strain of Calvinism that seems to suck the salt right out of the Christian. Paul, haven't you forgot God's sovereign? What do you mean you become all things to all men that you might by all means save some? Save some? Do we have any that are brave enough that we can talk like Paul? That if people begin to fill our churches through salvation, because we've got out there, we've been salty enough with both our words and our life and our compassion and our mercy and our purity of heart and our dependence on the Lord. We get out there in that mindset. Any of us say we can save some? I mean, let's talk like Scripture. Of course we keep in the forefront of our minds that God saves whomever He wills. We know that salvation is of the Lord, but God is just as sovereignly in control. Listen, think about it. I ride my bike at times along the canal. I see guys fishing. What would you think if I said to one of the fishermen, hey, why are you fishing? Don't you know God's sovereign? 
God's sovereignly in control of whether you're going to get a, a fish on that hook or not. You think, do you think he hears me and says, oh, I shouldn't fish. Just packs up and goes home. Brethren, only a fool believes because God is sovereign. A fisherman shouldn't go fishing. The reality is a fisherman's a fool to believe that he'll catch fish if he doesn't go fishing. Brethren, do you realize God uses means? And the means that God uses is Christians who retain their saltiness. The gospel's the power of God unto salvation, but how's it propagated? The reality is God's method. Salty Christians. That's His method. And that's always been the case. Look at the great fishers of men. Look at the churches that have had in the evangelical influence on the world. Look at the times and the places where people have been gathered in. You know what you'll always find? Salty Christians. Every time, every time we can say God's sovereign, but you know God doesn't just bypass the saltiness of His people. That never happens. Jesus says, we're the salt. What, what are we told to do? Go out into the highways and hedges. And compel them to come in. How are we going to compel them? Not by unsalty Christianity. Not by looking like them as much as possible. Not become seeker sensitive and try to appeal to all the lost people. Brethren, we've got to tell people the truth. But we've got to love them. And I, brethren, I know this, this takes effort. This takes sacrifice. This takes us dying to self. And the thing is, proximity is not enough. You can't just bring salt close. It's got to touch it. It's not enough that you live in the neighborhoods or that the church meets in a certain neighborhood. We've got to touch the people. We've got to get there. Bringing salt close to the food does not flavor it. Sinners close to our homes. Proximity to our churches. It's not enough. Too many Christians want to stay inside the salt shaker. Inward focused. Well, we've got problems in the church. Well, of course we do. We're always going to have problems in the church. But problems in the church doesn't mean circle the wagons. Stop being salty. That's not it. We, do, we can't not become so inwardly focused that to the neglect of some vision outward. Vision. I'm not afraid of that word. I mean by that some sufficient imagination and strategy and design, anticipation, expectation. Wasn't it William Carey that said, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God? I mean, that's the reality. We step out expecting God to come and help us and cause us to walk on the water as we go. We've got to try... Brethren, I'll tell you this. We try to take that saltiness out, we will see that God is with us. And we will not be ashamed if we're going to go out there, strive, plan, scheme to get the salt into the world, to produce that thirst out there, to produce that preservative in the rot that's out there. Listen, I'll tell you what else can happen. As schools degenerate, and you know they are, teaching homosexuality and same-sex marriage and all manner of garbage, and you, the whole homosexual agenda, we've got, we've got politicians that are liberal, that are moving as far away from the Bible as they possibly can. We've got a media that's absolutely obsessed with everything that's wicked. The names on things are being totally reversed. What's good is now bad, and what's bad is good, and we see it all around us. And brethren, I can tell you what can happen. We can have a tendency to want to withdraw from it. And even we hear in Scripture, come out from among them. And you know, there is a biblical separation, but you know what can happen. That biblical separation can easily become an unbiblical isolation if we're not careful. What did Paul say? What did he say? He said, 
I told you, I wrote to you not to eat with fornicators and adulterers and thieves. But He said, I'm talking about those who call themselves brothers. I'm not talking about every fornicator and every thief in this world. Otherwise, you'd have to come out of the world. That clearly is not what He wants. He wants us having dinner with fornicators and adulterers, just like Jesus got into this world and He ate with the tax collectors and the sinners. We don't want to overreact. The way Jesus intends for us to be salt of the earth is to actually get out there and traverse the earth to get in there. And I just finished with the example of Christ. And I mentioned it already. But you think with me here. The Scripture says that the Word became flesh. And He dwelt among us. He didn't sit on a cloud up there and simply give us instruction. You could do this, you go there. Isolated. See, He, he was not the Christ of isolation. He came down and He got His hands dirty. And He got right up beside. You think of Him. Eternal Deity. There in the glory of God. He gave that up. He emptied Himself in sacrifice and love. He did this out of love for His Father and love for humanity. And He came. And you watch Him. You watch Him as He viewed humanity. He actually felt He had it well up inside him. He wept. He could look at Mary weeping there. He looks at this just death and sickness and the wretchedness and the sin of men and unbelief in the midst of it. And it all just, it moved on his affections. He laid aside all that glory and he came down here. And what we want to see is His humility. We want to see His obedience. We want to see His love. That's what characterized His incarnation. His incarnation. We think of the little baby in the manger. But what you really want to think is God coming from glory to get close to men. Yes, He came by way of the manger to show us. He wasn't going to sit in the palaces and in isolated places. He came... He came right out of the loins of a woman who's married to a carpenter, laid in a manger, no place for him. He came and he emptied himself. Why? To bring salvation to men. To get right in there with us. He dwelt among us, not above us. Not far off removed. He didn't come on a South Pacific island and just dwell out there in in paradise and eat pineapples. I mean, He got right next to men in their sin, in their need. He came among the lowest, the dirtiest, the neediest. Oh, He could turn aside to the rich as well. He could go eat with the Pharisees. He could do those things. He could sit and talk to Nicodemus. But you, listen, if Jesus suddenly showed up here bodily, where do you think He'd go? I mean, if He showed up here bodily, And He came to do what He did when He was here the first time. And we really wanted to follow Him and be like Him. And to walk as He walked. Where do you think He'd go? I mean, imagine that. Jesus let loose on Manchester. Where would He go? I mean, if you were to all of a sudden find Him Tuesday afternoon at 4 p.m. or Friday morning at 9 a.m., where do you think you'd find Him? 
That's what we're thinking about. Brethren, I, t I said this before. People are smart. And they know. They can smell religious tradition. They can smell out the hypocrite. They know. They know when you care. And brethren, you know. You know when you care. You know when something wells up inside you when you want to help. Brethren, they know when you're looking through them. You're looking over their shoulder. Well, you know, it's 2 o'clock. We've got to get home. We've got to get home. And listen, I'm not saying that there aren't times I feel like that. And I know there's other responsibilities. I've seen it. I've seen it there in San Antonio. I, I, I watched these people come up one time. We were out there on the streets and we were, we were feeding the poor. And I saw these people, I forget, a Methodist or a Lutheran church. They pulled up there. They pulled up there in their beautiful, great, big, gigantic Chevy Suburban. <clears throat> and they kicked a box of clothes off the back of that truck for the homeless poor out there. And they drove off. No interaction. No touch. No, brethren, people, people, are people going to grab the clothes? Of course they are. But does that win people? I'll tell you, it's when the love and the sacrifice and the humility of Christ, some radical recklessness to just lay it all on the altar. Brethren, this is what the world needs. And this has always been the kind of people that have turned the world upside down. I'd ask you, just, just in closing, we're done, brethren, but are you in this book? Are you in this book? Are you beholding the glory of Christ? Are you studying His person so that the Spirit takes that glory and basically burns it into your own soul and your own person? And are you on your knees confessing and praying, Lord, make me like Him? Confessing. I know it, brethren. We feel it too much. This, this desire to be at ease, to have softness. I feel it. Do we confess it? Do we plead with Him? Are you asking God to burn Christ's image into you? Listen, brethren, God knows if you're real or not. He knows it. There's no playing games with Him. We can't... You show us... Brethren, you show me people that turn the world upside down, I'll show you somebody that spent time on their knees and they spent time in the presence of the glory of God. We need to be pleading, Lord, help me get past the fears. Help me get past the softness. Help me, the sickening desire for safety and security and comfort. Saltiness, brethren. That's what we're talking about. You are the salt of the earth. Are you real? Are you fake? Are you simply moral? Brethren, you can't fool God. And in the end, you've got to face God. And I'll tell you, if you know you're a fake, if you know you've never even been there, you want to ask the Lord to heal what's wrong. Take your sins before Him. Brethren, this is, this is the time we have here. It's to be salty. It's not to coast. It's not to get rich. It's not primarily to get married. Those things, you may make money in this world, you may get married, but I'll tell you, it all needs to be fitting in to the motions of this reality. You get married to be salty. Marry a person that's going to help you be salty. You're in this to make money, to put salt in the machine. Make the whole church run. Make money so that we can launch somebody off like Carrie out there to the ends of the earth. Brethren, our time is short. This is a reality. 
We don't want to mess around with Jesus' words. He is God incarnate. And He came. Hear Him. You are the salt of the earth. Father, forgive us for failure in this. Lord, we plead with You, help us. Unleash a power in our time that the world has not seen. Unleash a saltiness in us. Lord, we want to be faithful. We want to endure to the end. And I pray, no matter what personality the brethren here have, whatever our makeup, whatever our spiritual gifts, Lord, right down to the, the meekest, most quiet sister in the church, Give us a pungency of saltiness. Father, please hear. Please help. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. You're dismissed.